Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Sarah. G'day, Sarah. I'm Peter from Bendigo. I have a question. What is so important about this election? I'm Sarah Wilson, and you're listening to This Wild Election, a mini-series that will help everyone who gives a shit about the stuff that defines our nation to make their vote count. So where are we at a week and a half out from the election? Well, the polls are putting Labor ahead eight points on a two-party preferred basis, which is pretty significant. With women the main driver of this swing, they're swinging from Liberal to Labor quite significantly. However, the polls are also showing that there is a bigger and bigger swing away from the two major parties in general towards the independents and smaller parties like the Greens. And again, this is driven in the main by women, according to modelling done by the Australian Development Strategies last week. So it would appear women are angry and somewhat fed up and getting mobilised. And of course, this mobilisation and fed upness has also led to more than 30 women rising from these grassroots movements around the country and running as independents or, or teal independents as they're being called which I discussed in episode three, if you want to go and catch up on that episode. And these independents are running on platforms that speak to, I guess, what really matters to women. So anyone who's not a you, beaut, how good is Australia bloke in this country, we're talking issues such as climate, corruption, gender stuff, Indigenous issues, and of course, class issues as well. So this episode, we're going to cover off the issues affecting women. So I need to set things up a little bit, right? So gender inequality and misogyny in Australia is rife and it's got worse. So has the gender pay gap, which is sitting around about 13.8%. Indeed, we've gone backwards in recent years. So the latest Global Gender Gap Index prepared by the World Economic Forum saw Australia drop from 12th position in the world in 2006 to 70th in economic participation and opportunity. We dropped from 57th to 99th in health and survival. Yep, you heard that right, Australia in 2022. And from 32nd position to 54th in political empowerment. Another report of OECD countries on the gap between hours worked by men and women saw Australia come in as the fourth worst amongst developed nations. I mean, that's pretty big. So a lot of this, I feel, is coming from the top down. 
And I played this reel on Instagram earlier in the week of women reading out lines by members of parliament currently sitting in Scott Morrison's Liberal National Party. And they're read out by young women. Is this a real thing? Yeah, it's a real thing. She is a mad fucking witch. The truth is, women are stupid, and that's that. You're lucky that God gave women no bloody brains. I've heard your feisty. I'm sorry, it's just something that's been said to me, and I'm like, oh, I'm just so angry as I was, like, taking that breath. The best protection for girls is that they get themselves in a secure relationship with a loving husband. The decision to include women's soccer has surely given hope for jelly wrestling to become an Olympic event. You are a flash bit of kit in this chamber. There's no doubt about you. Economics? No, that's for the big boys. It's just what one bloke thought he was saying to another bloke. Unfortunately for you, I make the rules and you follow them. That's the background to it all. So in the final week and a half of this election campaign, which has been referred to by the media as a bloke fest, dominated by visits to speedways and pubs and a lot of talk of male tradies, I've invited two awesome guests to talk through the policies affecting 51% of this nation. So I'm joined by Kristen Personotto from Cheek Media, a young woman's fired up news comment Instagram site, which I'm a very big fan of. Check it out. I'll put the link in the show notes. As well as Jane Caro. She's arguably the country's leading feminist social commentator and also a New South Wales Senate candidate running for the Reason Party. Welcome, Jane, and welcome, Kristen. Thank you so much for joining us. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Okay, well, look, the first question I might direct at you, Kristen, you have chronicled the past few years of moments in in politics from a young female perspective on Cheek Media. And I've got to say, I'm a massive fan of your memes. They're just perfect. They just hit it every single time. Um, I'm wondering if you could perhaps share what were the big half a dozen face slap moments, the unforgivable draw drop moments that you've observed that you just can't get out of your head, just to remind us of the landscape seen through, I guess, a young woman's eyes. I have to shout out my business partner, Hannah, who does all of the memes. I can't take any credit. It's a hard choice, obviously. So I don't want to say that these were the absolute worst because there are so many to pick from. Probably one that's in recent memory is Amanda Stoker uh, speaking at the anti-choice rally, which she did recently. And obviously, we do support everyone's right to protest. But the fact that what she was saying was directly contradictory to women's rights when she is the assistant minister is quite disappointing. The second one, of course, uh, wouldn't be a list without this one when Scott Morrison said that the women marching in the, or everyone marching in the March for Justice were lucky not to be met with bullets. That was a pretty bad one. That was a turning point, I reckon. I can see Jane's head going into her hands. I mean, I think it was for all women of all ages. It was so stark, wasn't it? And it was a turning point, I think, for the mobilisation of a lot of women who felt that they didn't have permission to get fully outraged. That moment, and I know I interviewed Amy Ramikas, who wrote a, a sort of an essay and a book off the back of this, and Again, it was that moment that really turned her. So, yes, I think we're all on the page with that one. It was back in March 2021 and I was at the march in Canberra and, you know, meanwhile in Parliament 
Scott Morrison was saying the ladies are lucky they can do this. We allow them to do this and we don't shoot them. Isn't it great? Of course, another big one when he had to have his wife contextualize and may help him understand that uh, rape is a is a bad thing, essentially. Of course, off the back of the Brittany Higgins issue, so the parliamentary staffer who made allegations of being raped in parliament, he sort of went quiet, but then, of course, the media and women came out and got upset about it. He went home and spoke to Jenny and the girls (laughs) and reported back that Jenny told him, you know, to see it through the perspective of the eyes of a father. How would you feel if this had happened to one of your daughters? And he really just didn't understand how badly he'd read the room, had he, Kristen? Like he was just really, he was thinking he was doing the right thing, but it just shows how out of touch he is that he can't actually empathise with us as human beings. Unforgivable, really, and indicative of the fact that he doesn't see women as full human beings, not as human as he is anyway. Exactly. And I think the fact that not only does he have those conversations with Jenny, but then he thinks, oh, that's a really good thing to say in a press conference. (laughs) So the next one that I think isn't talked about very much anymore, but it was a big problem when it first happened, is when he allowed DV survivors to draw money from their own super in order to uh, escape violent situations, but then also claimed it as a win. I mean, women are already retiring with significantly less super than men. So I think that that one really showed how completely out of touch he is with the actual issues that a lot of Australians are facing. But there's one more that I wanted to flag. Uh, He ignored Danya Marnie's letter when she wrote to him describing her experience with sexual assault from someone in the Liberal Party. Danya's story hasn't really reached the mainstream media in the same way as a lot of other women's stories. And we interviewed her on our podcast a couple of weeks ago, and she talked all about her experience as a a Liberal staffer in New South Wales and... uh, pretty much lifelong member of the Liberal Party, you know, per her own words, she wrote to the Prime Minister and was just completely ignored. Right. Why do you think that was the case? Because you're right, it it really didn't cross everyone's radars. Why do you think she didn't get as much coverage as, say, Brittany Higgins did? So I never want to obviously speak on her behalf. However, when we, we did interview her, and a lot of this has come from her own words, her own story, is because she is a woman of colour and uh, women of colour obviously are unfortunately believed less. Uh, Their stories are given a lot less attention than a white woman who is kind of, you could say, easier to, in quotes, sell to the public as a victim. Really quite horrific, not only what happened to her, but also the way that it was treated in the media in comparison to a lot of other white women who experienced a similar issue. Mm. You've painted quite a specific picture and I feel that it really has escalated in the last couple of years under the Scott Morrison government. Jane, you have witnessed many election campaigns. You've seen many different leaders pass through Australia. Has the situation got worse? Because I know that young women like Kristen are sort of sitting back going, you know, Has it always been like this? Have women always had to get this outraged? Has it been this bad? What's your take, Jane? It's both gotten worse and gotten better. It's gotten worse because we have an absolute out-and-out, unashamed, misogynist um, lady. Now, we've had that before. Tony Abbott uh, definitely, I think, fits that description. And prior to that, many uh, soft, perhaps, misogynist 
you know, misogyny was normal. It still is normal, really, for most Australians and a lot of Australian men, and particularly those who reach powerful positions. It's slightly worse in that case, but it's always been like that. And women's issues have never, ever been the centre of an election campaign. The closest perhaps we came was Gough Whitlam's It's Time um, election, but that's so out of the box on everything that it's sort of the exception that proves the norm. But I think what's gotten better is the reaction of women because for all those decades, and I mean I'm about to turn 65, for all those decades, mostly women put up with it. They um, internalised their lack of importance, their worthlessness, their irrelevance, Constantly being told, oh, it's not the right time, you know, we'll get to you later, we'll, you know, uh, your husband will look after you, all that stuff. And basically, despite small groups of feminists, of which I've long been one, most women would still say to me, and particularly young women would say to me, I'm not a feminist. Oh, I'm not a feminist. No, that's shrieking sisterhood. I couldn't possibly be part of that. They hate men because any criticism of men or the uh, patriarchy or male power was seen as hating men, which is nonsense. But anyway, that's the way it's seen. So what has gotten better is the attitudes of women towards men behaving the way they've always behaved. And I think you can see that really affecting the guys. And I think across the board, frankly, the men who are standing, there's a sort of sense of, oh, where have these women come from? How dare they enter our space? These teal independents. I mean, Frankly, John Howard, I mean, what a charmer. He really knows how to, you know, get to the ladies. 20, 30 years ago, he called us doctor's wives, forgetting conveniently that even then quite a lot of us were doctors. And now we're, what is it, anti-liberal groupies. So there is this real sense in which the men feel their space is being invaded, that this is their territory and they get to control it. And I don't think this is a left-right issue. Yeah, It is across the board and it's systemic. Jane, I'm wondering then if you could actually talk us through what needs to happen, what kind of policy changes at a systemic level to address these concerns. You know, you're obviously running for the Reason Party in the Senate. You're very aware of what policy strategies need to sort of come about. Could you just tick off maybe, you know, four to five that you think are absolutely key that we should all be listening out for when we're listening to our various candidates rattle off their commitments to women? Universal free childcare and childcare, a childcare centre attached to every public school right across Australia so that access is easy. That's the first one. Pay child early childhood educators more, but not only early childhood educators more. Women are concentrated in the caring professions. We have one of the most gender segregated workforces in the world. 60% of us work in an industry dominated by one gender or the other. And this will shock you. Those dominated by men earn more than those dominated by women. So the Fair Work Act, this gender equity in the, is a really good policy. I, I think that's great. That's what we really, really need to do raise women's wages. But then we need to do things like every time a person takes time out from their paid work to look after others, be it be small children, people with a disability, um, ageing parents, whoever it is, and so save uh, us, the public purse, money by doing that, we should pay their super right the way through the time that they're out of the workforce so that they don't actually put themselves on a trajectory to poverty by caring for other people, which is, if you think about it, so just appalling. Because of course, it's women who leave the workforce to do extended periods of care, whether it's for aged elderly relatives or for children. And of course, long slabs of their career, they go without superannuation. That's a great one. What else, Jane? 
Well, homelessness, because, the, the again, it's all connected. There's not a hierarchy. It's like a mesh. So everything feeds into everything else. So homelessness, which then becomes the terrifying experience of women uh, often, some men too, but a lot of women in their older age because they don't have the super, they can't pay their rent. If you're a woman over 70 in private rental accommodation, you are 75% or something are living in poverty and many are facing homelessness. So we need to look at social housing. We need to, to really concentrate on how do we stop this happening. And one of the major precipitating things that gets you into homelessness is domestic violence. So women are being encouraged to leave abusive relationships as they should be. But then we give them nowhere to go and we give them no finances to help them survive. The cashless debit card, for example, which some women who when they leave a domestic violence relationship find themselves on if they're in one of the trial sites and they're on the supporting parents benefit, that absolutely replicates the kind of financial coercive control that they've just left with their coercive controlling abusive husbands, but this time they're being controlled and abused by the government. So we get rid of that. Um, We raise the rate. We must raise Centrelink benefits for those who can't find jobs. We must also do something sensible like this ridiculous idea that pensioners can't work more than five hours without losing their pension. We really need to have a look at that and see how we can actually allow pensioners to supplement what is a very limited amount of money and allow them to put their skills to good use for longer. There's so many policies that we could bring in, Medicare, dental care, you know, looking at ageing, and working out how to support a whole of life. We need to look at women's lives. What we do at the moment is we slice and dice women's lives. Kristen, would you add anything to that from a young person's perspective? Are there policies that you would like to see the major parties and beyond the independents and uh, the Greens implement to target some of the issues really facing young people, but, you know, young women in particular? For me personally, and also I guess I can talk about what people who follow us on Cheek and listen to our podcast do care about are the uh, implementing the respect at work recommendations. Um, the Morrison government uh, is not particularly interested in doing that in any genuine way. Serious and aggressive climate action, which obviously means big spending in that area, uh, whether, you know, Where that money comes from, it needs to be coming from the people who can afford to pay more taxes, the likes of Clive Palmer, big corporations who are paying less tax than the bottom bracket income earners. Constitutional voice for First Nations, the Uluru Statement from the Heart, that's something that we at Cheek are very supportive of. Good refugee policy. Currently, we have only 239 people locked in offshore detention and we're spending billions of dollars to keep them there in essentially a prison, even though they've committed no crime. And I think one of the big things for me, this election and every election, is looking at the makeup of, you know, if it's the case of a party, looking at the makeup of a party or looking at who the independent actually is, because we have a lack of diversity in government. We have, you know, way too few women, way too few diverse voices and diversity from everywhere, you know, from ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, all the way through to things like what kind of job they do. Like, where are the working class people represented in our government? And if we're talking about women's issues, it's just one example. If there are no women in the room, then women's voices are not going to be heard at the very highest level of Australian government. Mm. Look, both of you have covered a fair bit there, and I think it really speaks to how deep-rooted the issue is and how 
intersectional it all is and how systemic the problem is. And so systemic problems require systemic change. And I actually rang around the last couple of days some of the women's policy groups that have been advising the governments and also been trying to. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Get you know, people like yourself, Jane, to sign up to pledges and that kind of thing. And I spoke to a number of them. And from what I can gather, this is the lay of the land because I feel like I need to sort of outline what the major parties are offering and speaking to these issues that you've just covered off. In the main, the Greens and the Teal Independents and people like yourself, Jane, have committed to the Fair Agenda Pledge. So this is an organisation that have put together a sort of a policy rundown and they've gone and got over a 100 different candidates to sign on to this. And it's really the most comprehensive rundown of policies, I feel. And I'll put the link in the show notes because everybody can go and have a look at it. And they've got this great little widget where you can type in uh, your electorate and it'll give a scorecard on each candidate. You get the full green light, Jane, I noticed. And it's a really great way to see who is supporting these very fundamental policy issues. So in the main, the Greens have agreed to most of these pledges from the various women's policy groups, including Fair Agenda. They've done a costing, which is quite, from what I can gather, quite sophisticated. And they've also committed to a bunch of subtle things, such as investigating long-term options to value unpaid care work. Labor, from what I can see, has ticked off about 80% of these pledges. Not a bad effort. And they're also committing to making gender pay equity an objective of the Fair Work Act, which I understand is a massive tick. And Jane, you've just given a big thumbs up to that one, which is great. They're also looking at wholesale reform of early learning, speaking to what you mentioned earlier, Jane, including much better pay conditions, which is important. And their maximum childcare subsidy rate, I think, is up to 90% for families with their first child in care. And their aim is to make childcare universal down the track. And of course, as you mentioned, Labor is promising to pass all 55 recommendations from the Respect at Work report that was done two years ago, which is what every women's group has asked for. It's a very fair report. A lot of work was put into it. And as you say, the Liberal Party has not committed to this, or at least not all of the recommendations, but in particular, the core ones, the big ones. They've done a few around the edges, but not the big core ones from what I can gather. I should also just say, though, that Labor is not committing to paying super on top of the parental leave, which is the issue we just talked about, even though they did commit to it um, last election. However, the Greens, the Independents, yourself, Jane, you've committed to that. 
From what I can gather, the general assessment regarding Scott Morrison's LNP party is that they're going around the edges. They are increasing the childcare subsidy. I think they're committing $1.7 billion over three years, but already we spend $11 billion a year. So again, it's a little bit of tinkering around the edges. As I say, they're not passing all 55 of the recommendations, the Kate Jenkins report, and overlooked the key ones. So that's a bit of an overview. And as I say, I'll put a link to the Fair Agenda little widget, which is a scorecard. So you can actually go in there and see what your candidates are offering in respect to these policies that target this really deep-rooted issue for women and the gender gap that's embarrassing us on the world stage. But Jane, one thing we haven't quite touched on here is sort of older women. And as you say, I mean, all of us listening, we're all going to become older women, some faster than others. And what we're identifying, I think, in Australia is the problem needs to be addressed when women are in the workforce or when they're in reproductive years, because it basically carries on and it can land them in serious trouble by the time they get to their 50s and 60s. What is something very specific here? I know the Labor Party, and I don't mean to hark on about them, but they have committed to a fair bit when it comes to aged care and also paying aged care workers. And I'm just going to flag for everybody a story that somebody shared with me in an aged care home where they worked out it was cheaper to pay the aged care workers, qualified workers, to clean the toilets, to basically do the cleaning jobs, than it was to pay cleaners. The cleaners were were paid more than these aged care workers. That says a lot, right? So is there anything here that we should be listening out for in this area? Is there policies that are better than others? What's the way of the land there, Jane? Yeah, well, I think one of the really core things is the Labor policy about adding gender equity to the Fair Work Act. I think that will make a huge systemic difference. And as you say, this is a systemic problem. This has been going on, I mean, since the beginning of time, we've undervalued women's work. And we really do regard uh, caring work, we almost begrudge paying for it. It's like it's a woman's duty. She should do it out of love. That's what she was born for, to care for others. And if we have to pay her to do it, well, we're not going to pay much. That attitude, It's a lot of it is changing the attitudes as well as the behaviour. Because otherwise, if you just raise the pay for one group here and one group there, you are doing a bit of that fiddling around the edges, putting band-aids on things, rather than actually getting to the core issue, which is we systematically undervalue women's work. That is huge. But we can do other things for the women who are not going to benefit from it. So we're really facing a stark choice. We either condemn another number of generations of women to the kind of vulnerability to poverty as they age, as we currently have for my generation of women, or we do those changes. But at the same time, we have those women who are currently staring poverty and homelessness in the face, and they're not going to benefit from systemic change. They may be supportive of it because they know how it's affected them, but it isn't going to help them staring at what they're staring at. So those are why we need to do things like raise the rate. Those are why we need to do things like invest in social housing. And if you think about the fact that, again, everything's connected. If you think about the fact, I agree completely with Kristen about the urgency of climate change, and we need to transition away from dependence on fossil fuels and coal. Everyone gets terribly exercised. Well, when I say everyone, I mean the right, get terribly exercised about the 10,000 coal mining jobs that may disappear. I'm very interested in how worried they are about those, but they don't seem to give a flying fuck about the 51% of the population and their right to earn an income and keep themselves, you know, in reasonable amounts of money as they age. That appears to be a non-issue. Very interesting comparison. 
But if we really invested in social housing, for example, there's 10,000 people who are going to have to transition out of coal mining who, who may not want to go into caring professions. Some of them might, right? But they could build the bloody houses, for God's sake. I mean, why can't we be a little bit lateral about how we think about the transitions? They can build the renewable resources we need as well. There's so many jobs hanging off us just getting the barriers, and by barriers, I mean this government. I'm straight up about it. They are the people who've been holding us back for a decade on making the steps we inevitably will have to make to transition to a renewable economy. There are so many opportunities and jobs in that for women and for men. We have to look at the whole way we manage our workforce and our caring jobs. You've really brought up some great points there. Look, I've got a listener question, and I think, Kristen, you'd be the best person to answer this. Hi, Sarah. I'm Liana from Queensland. My friends and I really need your help. Which of the candidates are really taking the needs of the younger generation seriously and who will support young women? We don't have an independent in our electric and we want to ensure our vote goes to the right place. We are sick of the misogyny, Sarah. It's time for a real change. Please help. On Cheek, we don't advocate for any particular candidates, but we, we just advocate against the Liberal Nationals or the LNP here in Queensland. So not them, obviously. I think that often young people are ignored when parties and candidates are looking at policy, speaking just broadly, not about any specific party or candidate, because I think it's it's very interesting to see who kind of gets the flick when parties or candidates are looking to win an election. And so often is young people who are kind of ignored in the interest of, you know, older, more wealthy, which equals more privileged people who are, you know, the, the white, able-bodied, middle-aged or older white men who are benefiting from most of these policies that the people who are of those same demographics are in government. So, I think that independence, it's a tricky one because I never want to say, well, oh, you should vote independent because it really depends on the independent. And I think that's something that's often missed in a lot of mainstream media reporting. It's not just an independent doesn't automatically mean a good option. But I think that like having a serious look into policy and actually looking at things like which candidates have policies around helping young people buy houses, addressing the climate, obviously, is going to be an issue that we're going to have to deal with actually looking at what the parties are going to be doing for the economy. How much is that things going to be costing in a decade and what are our wages going to be like? Are we going to be able to afford that stuff? I think just looking at those future-focused policies is the most important thing we can do. And again, looking at the diversity of candidates. Are there young people running in these seats and are they running in winnable seats? Kristen, that's awesome. And I think it's really interesting that you have sort of a a ground rule that you're anti the Scott Morrison Liberal National Party. And it's really an unprecedented time in that sense, because I think I have witnessed myself, I usually try to keep myself balanced. I do these kinds of education campaigns each election. But I think for women, I think it has just become so overwhelmingly, glaringly obvious that the LMP has some very fundamental issues when it comes to women. It has escalated to levels I've never seen before. And I think Jane would agree as well. She's giving me the nod. And I think that that has to be borne in mind. It is intolerable to have a government that treats women like it does. And I'll just flag for everybody that I think quotas is really relevant here. So bear in mind that 
The Greens don't have quotas, but they have a 60% representation. Um, the Labor Party does have a quota and it's worked over the years. They're now at sort of, I think, 49 point something percent women in the lower house. Just by contrast, the LNP, I think they're currently at 21% representation in the lower house. That, I think, speaks for itself and they have absolutely no intention of bringing in quotas, you know, despite that result. So, I think it's really interesting that the three of us representing sort of different generations, we are all feeling that we have a mandate to be wholly critical of this government. It's almost non-negotiable. And of course, the polls are showing that women are flocking from the Liberal Party. They are in part moving across to the Labor Party. There has been that swing, but more predominantly, they're very much swinging to the independents and the minor parties. And for very good reason. Jane, I've actually got another question from a listener. I'm Amanda from Logan. My question is, is it true that in the current budget forecast from the Liberal National Government that they plan on taking money away from public schools but giving billions of dollars more to private schools? Is that true? And if it is true, why? Hey, Amanda, I'm so glad you've brought that question up. And I know, Jane, we've spoken about the public private school divide many years ago. I seem to remember we were in Tasmania doing some job for somebody at some stage. We were, yes. So we share a similar passion, ensuring that everyone's got equal access to an education and and a decent and fair education in this country. Yes. Uh, According to an analysis of the budget, the Liberal National uh, Government is taking about $500 million from public schools. They're saying this isn't a cut, it's some sort of readjustment or something. Who cares how they describe it? It will end up with less money going to public schools. And I think they're giving something like $2.5 billion extra to private schools. The really bedrock reason why this is so terrible is because here is a fact that most Australians don't know. There is not a single public school anywhere in Australia except a handful in the Australian Capital Territory who is funded to the minimum, I emphasise minimum, agreed school resource standard. Not one. Every private school in Australia, bar a handful in the Northern Territory, are funded above it and many of them are funded way, way, way above it. Yet public schools teach 80 to 90% of the most expensive to teach children. And bikes, because people seem to think that children are interchangeable and they're not. Children that come from low SES backgrounds, children that come from chaotic, um, you know, very unstable homes, children who have had no access to preschool or early childhood care, walk through the gate with less. Indigenous kids, kids from rural and remote areas, non-English speaking background kids, refugee kids, kids with a disability. All those children actually require more intensive teaching, more resources. They do better in smaller classes because they need to have much more concentrated attention to make up for the deficits that have been visited upon them at birth because no child is disadvantaged through any of their own doing. They're disadvantaged because they've been born to a family that for some reason hasn't been as fortunate as some other child's family or because they've been born with a disability or whatever else it might be. So when we punish children, 
because we say, oh, the driving force, this is the, the neoliberal, which unfortunately both the Labor and the Liberal parties have swallowed to some extent. This is the neoliberal philosophical approach to education that parental choice should be the driving thing. All you can do is entrench generational privilege and underprivilege. But it's even worse than that. It is so fiscally irresponsible. We piss this money up against a wall. The billions that go to already luxuriously resourced schools where the kids are already doing well and are already advantaged get us nothing. They don't lower the fees. They go up by about five times more than inflation every year, year on year. They don't add to the results of the kids. All they do is create palaces of privilege. It is, and it's an outrageous waste of money. And it's worse than that because it's Economics 101. The public subsidy of private supply is always inflationary unless you cap the fees that the private supplier can charge. We saw it in uh, childcare subsidies operate the same way. They actually set the price up. The first homeowner's scheme sent the price up. That's what happens. Subsidising private schools sends the price up. The reason is this. People who run these, the private providers, they're not stupid. They take the public subsidy, thank you very much, stick it in their pocket, and then they charge what the market will bear because that's capitalism. That's how capitalism bloody works. So all it does is increase the price by the amount of the subsidy. If you want the public subsidy of private supply to reduce the cost, you must cap the fees that can be charged. So you say you get this subsidy, but only if you charge less than this. You get more subsidy, the less, the lower the fees you charge. That would be a much more sensible way to do it. Once upon a time, I think churches supported their schools. Now I'm afraid I think religious schools are supporting the churches. And that's the battle we're fighting. It's really interesting that the questions that I have got from listeners, but also the issues that we've brought up here in this three-way discussion, it doesn't just speak to gender, it also does speak to class. And Kristen, you brought that up, I think, in a really interesting way. And I think that that's something that is not discussed nearly enough. It's a minefield. It requires a whole podcast series. And I am going to be covering it off in future issues beyond this election series, because I think it's a discussion we need to be having in Australia. And the gender issue plays into it so heavily. So I think this is a really great primer. Both of you have been absolutely wonderful in terms of sharing some really balanced thoughts on policy that we need to be looking out for. You've given great advice and guidance to voters in terms of what to navigate. As I mentioned, I will be putting that link to the fair agenda little sort of scorecard widget. I think it's really useful for everybody. You can go and look at every candidate in your electorate, including the Senate. So you can go and check out Jane and Jane's policies. Um, and you can then make sure you really do a informed vote. And I think voting from a platform of attending to your interests as a woman is not a bad space because it is, it really branches out and touches upon every single policy I think that speaks to where we need to head as a nation. We have become an unfair, misogynist, classist society within a generation. And it's not how we view ourselves. It's not how we want to be identified as a nation. And this is the election where we need to do something about it. And women are fired up 
And I think hopefully this episode will steer that concern towards some good voting options for everybody. Kristen, did you have anything you wanted to add at all or should we wrap it up there and get everybody off researching ahead of the election in, oh gosh, just a little over a week? I guess the only thing I'd say is just make sure you understand how preferences work. At Cheek, we have been talking about it a lot. If you want to go to our Instagram, Cheek Media Code, there are lots of explainers that are really simple. But yeah, vote in your interests and make your vote count. Excellent. All right. Thank you to both of you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.